Hello and welcome to this week's initiative podcast. Today we're joined by Chief Economist Dr Eric Crampton who's going to share his thoughts on the announcement of the Trans-Tasman bubble that's opening in about 10 days time. Hi Eric. Morning Simone. So July last year you wrote a paper called Safe Arrivals which had some recommendations on how New Zealand could safely open up our borders. Could you just give us a quick recap on what some of those recommendations were? Sure, this was fairly early in the in the whole pandemic. Um, before that, it had seemed obvious that the world was going to be splitting into kind of green zones and red zones. This was something that Balaji Srinivasan, who's a tech venture capitalist in uh, California, had been talking about since March. So March 2020, we were not yet in lockdown, and he was already kind of seeing this coming. And it's pretty obviously right, right, that some places would be manage to get the virus gone, other places wouldn't. The places that successfully eliminated the virus would link up together with kind of free migration between them, shared fairly hard borders to the outside, keeping the virus out. And then at least as of March last year, the hope was that the number of countries that had successfully eliminated the virus and places that had successfully eliminated the virus would expand over time and that the green zone would expand and the red zone would contract and we'd be getting this wonderful sort of free movement among reasonable countries. We've not quite gotten there, have we? So it's been more than a year later. Now we're finally getting some of these happening. The first one came last week with uh, Palau and Taiwan. So it's not New Zealand. Taiwan has been COVID-free basically throughout. They've had better systems than us basically throughout. Um, There's no reason that we couldn't bubble up with them. They started off with Palau. We had argued last July that we should be exploring um, travel arrangements with Taiwan as well as Australia. The Australia link matters a lot more for our economic relations and for families because there are a lot more families that are split by the Australian border than the Taiwanese border. But the underlying principle should be that movement of peaceful people that doesn't impose risk on others shouldn't be constrained unless there's really compelling purpose. And COVID gives a really compelling purpose. America's a little scary. India's even scarier. Restrictions there make some sense. Restrictions on travel to places that don't have it. Like, why are we even doing that, right? Taiwan is safe. We could bubble up with them. Australia and parts of Australia, it's varied of how safe they are. But kind of the same as here, right? Occasionally there's a minor outbreak in Auckland. They put in some localized restrictions. We don't ban people from traveling from Invercargill to Auckland on the basis that, well, they might get stuck in Auckland if we wind up having an outbreak in Auckland. We, we don't do that, right? We shouldn't be doing that with Australia either. And finally, we're getting the travel bubble with Australia. It's really important that we be able to maintain that and being able to maintain that um, requires keeping the virus out. So why is it important to maintain it? There's about $129 billion of Australian money that's invested in New Zealand. There will be consequences if Australian investors aren't able to come back and forth to take a look at what the, what's going on with their investments. Families are riven by this, and there are lots of communities that depend on the tourist trade between those. Uh, the human story on families is really important. It's been getting increasing play in mainstream media, so that's great. Um, The consequences for tourist towns have been better understood, although unfortunately too often that's seen as these guys finally getting their comeuppance. Was it Damien O'Connor that was mouthing off about that? It's unfortunate that it's seen that way. We need some better mechanisms around funding tourism, but that's kind of a separate issue. 
keeping borders closed to give a comeuppance to tourist towns is a bad idea. It's good that we finally got the, the arrangement with Australia. All right, so maintaining it. If we or Australia wind up with outbreaks again, the bubble won't be maintained. There are minor things that could change practice in our border system to make it a lot safer, to prevent the virus from coming through. So if you'll recall earlier in the week when they um, brought in the bubble, they said that the spaces that had been taken up by Australians in our MIQ system won't be released for visitors coming in from America or Canada or India or anywhere else. Instead, some of them will be held in reserve in case something dumb happens and we need to reimpose MIQ for Kiwis that are in Australia and the rest will be decommissioned. Now, the reason for that is that fundamentally the government can't trust itself. It knows that the practices in MIQ are terrible, that there is strong risk of cross-contamination between people who are in MIQ and from MIQ visitors to border staff. They keep doing absolutely stupid things like running bus tours out to parks for recreation for MIQ visitors where you're picking up people from different facilities. They might be at from different stages of their visits. It's, it's just absolutely insane, right? The point of MIQ is to keep people isolated so that you make sure that they don't have it and that they can't transmit it to anybody else. Instead, we keep seeing transmission within MIQ. If you don't believe me on it, you can have a look at public health blog. Uh, the, the Otago people have been tallying the problems that they've been having in the MIQ system. All of it means that the system hasn't been safe to scale up. And that has been, was the point of the paper that we put out last July. We called Safe Arrivals, that the only way to be able to get closer to normal travel arrangements was to have a really, really, really safe border system so that you could trust that people coming in wouldn't be getting virus out into the community. It had to be locked down really safe so that it could scale up to accommodate the amounts of travel that are really needed to... Um, prevent economic damage and to allow families to get back together again. So among the things that we had in there were, well, more reliance on frequent testing. That's become a lot more feasible now. We still don't have it in place. So the government now has an RFP out looking for uh, people who might provide more frequent saliva-based testing for MIQ workers. Now, MIQ workers are becoming vaccinated. It's still being done in a very slipshod manner. The government has no clue which border workers are vaccinated and which ones aren't and quite who counts as a border worker. It's been very frustrating watching this whole process when the government knew when the vaccines were going to be here. They knew what it would take to get vaccines delivered to their border workers. They could have as of January, put in a public health order from Minister Hipkins or from DG Health Bloomfield applying to the Auckland area in particular, saying, if you work in the border system, you must be vaccinated. Unvaccinated people are not allowed to be at the front line, right? If you did that, then private employers that are involved in the border system would have to find ways to redeploy workers who hadn't been vaccinated. You wouldn't wind up with people finding personal reasons to not get around to getting their shots when they were scheduled to have their shots because there'd be employment consequences for not getting the job done. That was the case that came up this week. The worker had missed two appointments to be vaccinated and winded up catching the thing. Now, I don't know when those appointments were scheduled. It could be that they were just very recent and that he would have been would have caught it anyway because you, it takes a little while for protection to build up after you've been vaccinated. But isn't it ridiculous that we're running a system where they don't know who's been vaccinated, they can't track it, they don't know the numbers, and they're not requiring it? 
Like none of that makes sense. If you want to be serious about running elimination, you have to harden the system to make sure that it can't get out. They have not been doing this. The second bit that they haven't been doing is the testing within MIQ. They're looking to get testing of the border workers who eventually, if they get the vaccines done properly, will be lower risk. They should be running daily saliva testing of every person in MIQ. If you have daily testing of every person who's in MIQ, you don't have transmission within MIQ because you find the people who are infected, you get them out to Jet Park very quickly. They're not sitting in a poorly ventilated hotel room for potentially days before they're found to be infected and then potentially get, well, the door opens to the hallway, the aerosols get out into the hallway, people walking by inhale them if they're going off to the gym or whatever in, in MIQ, you get cross-contamination cross that way. Daily testing would reduce the risk. It is entirely feasible. Rayco would be able to provide it tomorrow. The government just has to ask, but they're, they don't seem to be interested in reducing risk. Why do you think, what do you think is the holdup? Why do you think they're not jumping on the saliva-based testing? I think they've been getting poor advice from ESR on saliva-based testing based on ESR's difficulties in running its own version of the Yale protocol. The Illinois protocol that Rayco is running has been validated, proven up. Uh, they could add it in alongside the current swab testing for everybody in MIQ, and it wouldn't take long to show that the existing swab tests are redundant, but at least you'd find out, right? I think it would show that they'd be redundant. You maintain the existing swab tests just to make sure. Mm -hmm. Add it in, it would be trivial cost. It wouldn't cost that much relative to the improvement in risk. And that's been a problem in this whole approach, right? That normally it really makes sense in normal times to be watching really closely on cost effectiveness because normally you're looking at things that are benefit to cost ratios, maybe two to one or three to one, maybe 0 0.9 to one if you're not careful enough. Spending over the odds to get tons of vaccines in a great big hurry and get tons of, of uh, testing capacity in a hurry, those are more like 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 benefit to cost ratios. If you could get everybody vaccinated as of now, you'd be able to look at opening the borders, right? Or opening the borders with a requirement that anybody coming in has been vaccinated to reduce the risk of uh, new variants that might have... Um, that the vaccines might not be quite as protective against. Eventually, you're going to want to get to a system where everyone in New Zealand is vaccinated, people coming in are vaccinated, you have a test before they leave, they have a test when they arrive, maybe if they're coming from higher risk places, you have minor amounts of MIQ left for those visitors. But you could have all of that in place kind of like now, instead of a year from now, if we had a, a bit of a put the lead on for um, getting the vaccines rolled out and brought into the country. Instead, it's not been seen as a priority. The minor amounts of money that it might have costed to get vaccines in in a hurry, which would also help build capacity in the vaccination system so they could get more vaccines produced. That's one of the points of paying early for getting lots of it is that it builds up that capacity so that they can keep building vaccines for more people. We didn't do that. We were told we were going to be first in the queue. Instead, we're at the end of the queue. And maybe by the end of the year, everybody will be vaccinated. And maybe at that point, they'll find that they have to get a new round of vaccines through for booster shots for the new variants. And we're going to have continued border issues. So it's been a bit of a nickel and dime approach that's been, I think, motivated by just a lack of urgency in dealing with border issues that... 
For a substantial part of the population, they see the closed borders as a benefit rather than a cost. Some of them hated foreigners to start with and never wanted to see them here. Some of them resent people who've been able to travel and don't see the costs that will be borne by the broader community and the economy if we're not letting business travel happen again, right? So if you look at how they're running the vaccine rollout, first, it's, it's meant to be going to border workers and at-risk staff, and that absolutely makes sense. That's where it has to go first. But the next people who are at risk after that aren't the normal risk factors in places that have a lot of pandemic around, because we don't. The next people at risk are those who might need to travel and not making it easy for business travelers to be able to get vaccinated so they can get the vaccine passports that'll be needed for travel to places where they've got business links. Well, the business links that have been atrophying over the past year will continue to atrophy and die. Right? We are not going to be reestablishing the business links that we need to be able to have a successful economic recovery. They've been very wrongheaded about this. So in our initial paper, we'd had a, a, a rather different way of handling the border system. We'd suggested that instead of having the government necessarily running all of the MIQ facilities, they instead publish the protocols that are needed for other people to be meeting and that they run strong audit processes through it, making really sure that the facilities are safe, but not feeling compelled to run them all themselves. And then letting the hotels or the facilities run their own booking systems. So we keep seeing now these problems where because they're running an idiotic way of booking, they keep having lots of cancellations because people will overbook themselves because they don't know when they're going to be able to arrange the flights that are going to be able to match up with the scarce number of spaces. And then they wind up canceling at the last minute and they have, they're having a series of issues in there. You get waves of openings for MIQ spaces and then people scrambling to get them. None of it makes much sense. If the facilities themselves could make their own bookings and let prices adjust so that at peak times it'd be more expensive, at slack times it'd be a little bit lower, and the uh, potential for higher prices would draw more providers into the market, they'd have to be meeting the strict standards for running one of these facilities, for making sure that it's safe. MOH has demonstrably not been able to do this very well. When we'd put this out, there's some critique, saying, well, can you really trust private providers? you trust the protocols that would be set up and enforced and audited to make sure that they work and then liability that applies if they're running it incorrectly. Right now, if they're running things badly in the public system, nothing much happens, right? Bloomfield looks a little embarrassed at the next stand up and everybody says, okay, well, that's fine. You're trying really hard. It's just not working, right? Um, we need to be able to scale up more successfully. And that requires running much tighter systems to keep the risk down so that you're able to start recommissioning some of these spaces, knowing that they're not just going to result in new variants getting into the country. They have to be a little bit more, more hardened. So the government this week found that it had to restrict travel from, us, from India. The number of cases that they were, that were coming in from India just meant that there was too much risk. And that's, understandable given the system that we've been running. Alternative systems could say that, say, airlines bringing infected people into New Zealand would have to pay $50,000 per person who arrives who's infected, right? You force them to sort out safe ways of getting people here. You could start, there's, there's lots of different options, right? You could run antigen testing at the gate before departure. Any, any flights coming to New Zealand, 
the, the antigen tests, they're not nearly as good as the PCR tests, but they can give results in 15 minutes and they would stop infected people from getting on the flights. Mm -hmm. We see lots and lots of people showing up, turning up positive on day zero testing. So on arrival, they show up, they're infected. Those kinds of folks would be pretty likely to be caught by the rapid antigen testing at the gate before they get on the plane. Get, they'd be denied boarding if they presented a positive antigen test at the gate. Not wanting to be kept off the flight, that would change the traveler's incentives, right? And change their behavior. You would want to make sure that you stay kept isolated before you traveled so that you wouldn't be denied boarding on the plane. You would want to make sure that you had a robust PCR test and that you, there's been some concerns about fake, fake test results out of India. I don't know whether those have been affecting travel to here or just to the United States, but we've seen reports of these. If you're going to be denied boarding because you're infected, you want to know that you're not infected, right? So you start changing some of those incentives. But they've not been thinking about this in those kinds of ways. And um, the Otago folks have recommended ha shifting MIQ abroad. So restrict travel to um, a few hubs where you run, MI you have MIQ hotels in, say, Dubai, Singapore, Los Angeles, maybe Sydney require that people spend a bit of time there with lots of testing before they get on the planes. The response back from the health system on this kind of thing has always been, well, we, we can't even run things here. How, how could we possibly run things over there? Well, and, and the concern has been that because New Zealand does, it doesn't have legal jurisdiction, it just wouldn't work. That's the wrong way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. You, you don't need legal jurisdiction. You just need that the airline stops people from getting on the plane if they don't if they haven't gone through the MIQ system in compliant ways, right? If you've been a Muppet while in MIQ, you don't get the good behavior certificate coming out of MIQ. You don't get to go on the plane. That sorts itself. You don't need to have New Zealand police over there. You just need to have systems that you can trust that they won't let people out without getting the certificate and then onto the plane without the certificate. So that's solvable, but they've not particularly wanted to solve it. And I think that fundamentally it's because people don't really want to re-enable travel. It's very frustrating. Thanks, Eric. That's very interesting. I'm sure we're not going to be the only people who are watching what happens on from April 19th. Um, and if you want any more information on Eric's paper, Safe Arrivals, you can find that on our website, nzinitiative.org.nz and on Eric's uh, Insights column, Stronger Borders in today's Insights newsletter. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.